Want to do better? Then it's time to change the story. Welcome to our show about new visions currently transforming the world through the confluence of art, tech, and innovation. And now your hosts, Michael Ashley and Neil Sahota. Welcome to another episode of Changing the Story. We have a fantastic guest today, Dr. Diane Terry. She's an experienced researcher in social welfare and program evaluation. Her research focuses on mental health disparities among communities of color, currency, and well-being outcomes for youth and families. She currently serves as the project coordinator for the California Reducing Disparities Project Statewide Evaluation Team, which is a multi-year, multi-site evaluation of community-defined evidence practices addressing mental health and wellness throughout California. Her book, Everyday Desistance, The Transition to Adulthood Among Formerly Incarcerated Youth, examines how formerly incarcerated youth navigate re-entry and transition to adulthood in urban Los Angeles. Dr. Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for being here, Diane. So, Diane, as a visionary, what is the story that you want to bring to the world? I think the idea that I would most want to share really revolves around the idea of how can we humanize and, and show that all lives matter, particularly among uh, formerly incarcerated youth. And I think we can do that by re-envisioning a criminal justice system and a social safety net that recognizes the journey of moving away from crime and also acknowledges that people will make mistakes along the way. And that's part of the process as well. Absolutely. So, so Dr. Terry, what's, I mean, what's one of the biggest challenges that you see working with the youth? I mean, what, what's happening? Yeah. I mean, how much time do we have? I think it has a lot to do with this idea that when, you, when young people tend to get involved with the criminal justice system, there's so many barriers that they encounter both inside of the system and then also once they return home and that there is no one straightforward quote unquote success story. I think we all like the idea that someone gets in trouble, um, they come home, they get a job, they finish school and now they're successful and life is better from there on out. And I think that the process from what I've discovered in research is not linear. It's gonna be full of you know, starts, moving backwards, moving forwards, starting yet again. And it, it's, it's very nonlinear in that way. I'm really glad you're bringing this up because this is something that has bothered me for, for many years. Um, when I was back in college, we talked about the uh, whole philosophy behind punishment. And it seems to me incredibly unfair that someone makes a mistake, especially when they're young. You know, when we were young, uh, we did things that, that were, you know, not, not in the best interest, right? You don't have that hindsight you do when you get much older, but then you're penalized for the rest of your life. And so we look at the, the way that we are uh, handling um, our, our prisons right now. We look at the way that, that uh, the punishment is occurring. It's not just we send somebody away to prison. We ruin their lives. I mean, essentially, once that occurs, there is no coming back into regular society for most people. I can personally say that when, it's, when it came to um, filling applications for a renting apartment or getting a job, they have those questions on there. And so it's like you have this, this black mark for the rest of your life and that there is really no hope for you to then rejoin society because for the rest of the time when you're back, people are judging you. And, and I'm glad that you're bringing up these issues right now. 
Yeah, and I think also for for formerly incarcerated youth in particular, so if you've spent any time, uh, amount of time in your adolescence getting in trouble, whether it's once, twice, you know, kind of ongoing, there's this really unique period of life, which is kind of coined the transition to adulthood. And that's where, you know, 18 to 24, that's generally a time where you are trying to figure it out. You are perhaps making mistakes, you're taking risks, you're exploring your identity. And so the idea behind the research that I started doing was really looking at for formerly incarcerated youth, they're often not afforded that safety net that say middle class, um, middle to upper class individuals typically have, right? If you're fortunate enough to go to college or to have a family who can kind of support you, maybe help you to get a job, if you make a mistake, right? Which like, as you mentioned, 18 year olds probably do, Right. There's a safety net for you to fall back on. But for formerly incarcerated youth, it's often the case where that safety net is not there or the standards are so much higher. So when they make that mistake, when they take a risk as they're bound to do, there's there's nothing there to catch them. And then they're penalized further. And so they kind of it's that cycle that doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. Look, I, I know the transition is is hard. Like I remember when I was about to leave for an assignment to China where I'd be out there for a while. They were saying like, when you come back to the U S you'll have trouble adjusting back to life here. I'm like, yeah, right. Whatever. You know, I was born here. They were absolutely right. I, I remember my friends picking me up or driving on the freeway and I was weirded out and I, I couldn't put my finger on it at first. And I realized it's so quiet. I've used so many hon honking <laughs> horns on the, on the streets of China. That's what it dawned on me. Wow. It's going to take me time to get adjusted. But you know, I was, I was an adult. You know, I, I got some life experiences, that's resilience and coping skills, but when you're, you're that young and you go through an incarceration, it's a major life change, right? I mean, you don't have so many skills. I mean, what, what are people doing or is it just expectation that they're going to have to figure it out? Yeah, and I think it's, it's a little bit of both. So, excuse me, there does tend to be a lot of focus on those first few months when people get home that, you know, if you just kind of get them the right supports, get them a job, get them in school, then that sets them off for kind of longer term success. But what I've kind of found in my research is that even when, although that initial period is really, really critical, it's over time and it's kind of the lack of sustained support that can really become challenging. So for instance, um, I worked with young people or, or met them in my research where they were kind of that quote unquote poster child for the organizations they were involved with. They got a job, they went to school, they were often advocate, advocates for the program saying you can turn your life around and so on and so forth. But what happens a year later when they go to a party with their friends and they might run into a former enemy? Or they figure, okay, I'm, I can let my guard down a little bit, let me go to a party, and the police show up at that party. Well, who's going to get arrested or, or kind of re-brought in? It's the person with the record. And so I found that there tends to be young people who fall into these groups where they're either, they've completely cut off old friends, old ties, old networks. They, they're often leading these really, really serious lives. They're, they're married, they're parents, they're working these incredibly difficult jobs. And you would think, wow, this is like a 50-year-old man. He's, he's 20 <laughs> living this kind of life. And then there's others who might kind of fall into a pattern of, I'm trying to turn my life around, but when I hit roadblocks, I'm going to resort back to some crime because I need to eat. I may not have a family to return to or 
the environment that I'm returning to, it's a little bit toxic for me, but at the same time, that's the only place I have to go. So you kind of find people who are in these different groups trying to change, trying to move forward, but again, they kind of get stuck in the cycle because of that lack of a safety net. Well, even bringing up when you say, you know, you need, needing to eat, right? And I think at the heart of crime when we're talking about in this country, the real heart of it, I think it has to do with, uh, there aren't enough opportunities for people to have the economic future that they want, right? And so it's very difficult to make it in this country. And I think it's getting harder and harder to make it in this country. And it's not as if people set out to be a criminal. It's just, you have to do what it, what it takes to provide for yourself, to provide for your family. And so it makes me think we need to look at the economic situation, the economic system that produces uh, crime. And I wonder what your thoughts are there, how to, how to make a more equitable world so we're not seeing so much crime anymore. Yeah, I mean, gosh, that's such a tough question. I think in general, there aren't enough. And, and again, I think for when you go to college, for example, there's internships. There's chances where you have to explore different things to say, oh, I might be interested in this job. And, and there's those resources available to you, right? Mm -hmm. And I find that for formerly incarcerated youth, those um, opportunities often don't exist. Or one thing that I find is that it's, it tends to be when there are jobs, they are jobs, right? It's like, oh, there's a construction job, there's this. But who asked that youth, um, you know, what's your long-term vision like for a career? So when you're not able to do this job anymore, and for some it is going to be those hands-on trade skills, but how do we kind of nurture their dreams and visions? Mm -hmm. So there was a young man who I came across who was kind of in this cycle of kind of fast food work, seasonal work, cyclical work in that way. He would get laid off and, and try to find another um, job but in the meantime he was kind of working on just side ventures and this was maybe around 2010 and he told me about this really great idea he had where he was using his car to drive other people around and they would pay him money so that he could drive them to where they needed to get and then when later uber and lyft explo explodes i'm like oh my gosh that was him that's exactly what he was doing he and he had so many different ventures like that he was an entrepreneur but where were those opportunities for him to kind of nurture that dream and those passions? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's tough, right? I mean, there's a stigma when you've been incarcerated. And even if you try to do your best, I know other people are going to look at you differently. And I know some of your work is around like mental health and wellness. I, I got to think that even if you come out and you're physically okay, and you're, you're, you're trying to get reacclimated, trying to get a job, there's still a mental toll that may be weighing down on you. Right. I mean, is, is I look at it right now with COVID and the quarantine and, you know, hey, we're opening everything up, go back to work, do these things. It's like so many of us were stressed and anxious, PTSD, you know. Right. Uh, is it, I got to think that for, for these youth, this is like something to the nth degree that they're going through. Yeah. I mean, the amount of undiagnosed trauma among um youth who've been incarcerated is just astounding. There's disparities in terms of um, the types of treatment youth get. Let's say if they're in a juvenile detention facility, sometimes there's services there, sometimes there's not. And then, yeah, when you come home, it's often about those external things. Get a job, go to school, you know, cut off the gang, all of that. But who's dealing with the fact that you witnessed murder? you know, um, right. at different points in your life, or you grew up in a foster care system and were bounced around to different um, foster homes, 
or you were that youth who maybe just got in trouble one time, did something stupid, ended up being tried as an adult because of the nature of sometimes how certain crimes are viewed, and then the trauma you experienced just from being incarcerated alone. And I think the flip side of that then is that when there are mental health supports available, what are those services really, really look like. And you can imagine, especially for youth who've kind of been institutionalized, the last thing someone wants to go and do is then go and sit at a traditional therapist's office and say, well, here's what's wrong, I'm depressed. That's not even something that's necessarily um, interesting, appealing, or even, especially for communities of color, necessarily the way that, that we process trauma. And so I think it really is about looking at alternative ways of treating trauma so there's a program called um, Inside Out Writers, and they offer writing classes for youth who are incarcerated. The way that those youth open up to that program because someone simply allowed them to share their story and in the process of writing, they were able to process that trauma and kind of share it and think through it and reflect on it. Those youth might have never spoken if they were laying down on a therapist's couch, but it was kind of looking at alternative ways of treat, treatment and, and letting people um, share their grief. I think those are the strategies we need to invest in. Absolutely, yeah, I can, I can definitely see how that can be extremely helpful. And I can also see how it'd be very hard, uh, especially if, you know, in order to survive, it was up to you to um, distance yourself from your feelings and to armor up. And then once you're, out of that situation, or at least somewhat out of that situation, now they're, they're asking you to open up about that and how that can be very difficult to do something like that. Um, about a year ago, I was listening, I think it was on NPR, and had John Legend talking about the idea of prison reform. And so it was the first time I really even heard about this whole idea. This was even way before defund the police and things like that. But the whole idea that we begin to even uh, look at the way the prisons work now is not good at all. And say most people don't deserve to be in prison at all. Uh, especially for people that have nonviolent offenses. And I wonder what your thoughts are about even just uh, changing the entire prison system, the way that we, we are supposedly meeting out justice. Uh, what your thoughts are about that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think it's hard for us to even envision a world where that type of criminal justice system doesn't exist. And I, I do feel that if the demographics that people picture when they picture formerly incarcerated youth I think if it looked more like who they were or who they mm. saw as their children or their family friends or family members and the humanity that would be involved in serving those, right? We all know someone who's been in trouble and felt like, man, all they really needed was a, a job or a counseling program or, you know, something like that. I think it would look different. I think that when you have kind of, you know, especially when you look at like the 90s and different eras where that idea of the juvenile justice uh, super predator came out, where he's mm. this hardcore young man of color, there's no stopping him, he's almost um, monstrous in terms of the acts he's committing, well then you're definitely gonna um, design a criminal justice system that reflects what type of punishment you think that person should have. Mm -hmm. But when I think of someone, um, a young man I met by the name of Tyrone, you know, got in a lot of trouble, could not break that cycle. When he talks about the programs inside the criminal justice system that were most effective for him, it was um, a football program. It was the first time in his life he had ever been on a team 
It was the first time where he was ever given leadership responsibilities as part of that team. And he thrived when he was a part of that program. He was still in a juvenile detention camp. Mm -hmm. um, but for him, he really found some security. He found a place to showcase his skills. He probably would not get that in other settings or even once he returned home under the probation system. And so when I think about re-envisioning a criminal justice system, it's how do we have opportunities like that? How do we recognize that a 16 year old young man might want to be on a football team, even if he has been in trouble, right? Yeah, yeah. For sure, I think your, your key word right there is opportunity, right? We have to create opportunities for the youth so that they can do these things. But I think we also kind of got the the drag down here and that we, we have a, a society or even a culture of crime and punishment, right? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like we have to kind of transform that mindset to create more of these opportunities. I mean, how, how do we actually go about as a society doing that? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a hard <laughs> one. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is getting, getting the narratives out there of who an actual incarcerated youth is. You know, one thing I was so struck by with the young men who I, young men and women who I worked with was the amount of youth who go and serve these really long sentences for really minor crimes. I mean, I think, I don't know the extent to which people are aware that you can get caught up in the youth uh, justice system by having a series of tickets that you get from riding the bus without, um, you know, without riding the train without a, a ticket that you've paid for. Mm -hmm. Or that if you um, go AWOL, which is you kind of leave a group home without permission, you can get arrested for that. And once you, again, once you're in that system, it is very, very hard to break out. Um, one of the young men we went, he, he ended up being fighting a trial. So, you know, th there was a, a law where it basically said that you could be tried as an adult depending on the severity of your crime that stemmed from him stealing a jacket from someone off the bus. And so not to say that it was okay for him to steal that jacket, but he, luckily he was able to, to beat that charge, but he spent about two years in a juvenile detention facility fighting that case. So I think that when people see, think about a youth who's incarcerated, it's always, well, but he, but they should have, well, they, it's like, yeah, the, he, he, was, he stole a jacket. And so I, I think part of it is also getting some of those narratives out there um, so that people really, really think about what some of these crimes were. Uh, I mean, we, sorry, go ahead, Neil. That's such a great point. I, I think you know, this, we were, this is changing the story, but I think you're talking about sharing the stories because we tend to think of you know, the, these criminals as just a lump of people and we, don't, we dehumanize them. Mm -hmm. right? I think by telling the stories, we hear the human aspect and I think we can all relate to some of the things. Oh, wait a second. That, it's not really a crime. This, this guy, okay, he didn't have his bus pass, couldn't afford a bus pass, shouldn't be thrown into the system like that, you know? And, and maybe that's a good step in creating this mind shift or cultural change. Exactly, exactly. And, and it just feels so, so unfair. It's, it seems so, um, so outsized in proportion to what happened. You know, going back to the fact that, you know, obviously when, when you're younger, especially if you don't have the same economic opportunities that, that would force you into making those decisions, going back to what Neil was saying a moment ago about opportunities. But I'm, I'm going to change the gears here to maybe even go more to a positive place for a second. What are the stories, what are the people you've worked with lately that, that give you hope, uh, things that you're really excited and proud about that, that are great things that are occurring that you see? 
Um, I think in terms of uh, formerly incarcerated youth, I think it's giving me a lot of hope that I've been able to stay in contact with a few of those youth over time. And I know one young man I can think of in particular, two actually have become uh, community activists. Mm -hmm. So it's about them now um, working in the communities where they grew up and really trying to affect policy change, right? So not just looking at the individual and how can I personally change, but you know, what are the reforms that are needed in our schools? Because I started getting in trouble around the fourth grade and there was, there was no help for me there, right? Yeah. What are some policy reforms that are needed um, just in our, in our community? How, how do we have clean parks? How do we, you know, that type of thing. And so seeing those youth, I think, has um, be involved in systemic change has been helpful. I also think um, a young man who was involved with the study is now getting his PhD. Right, and um, this was a young man who was heavily, heavily gang involved and actually chose not to be a part of programs once he got out that were kind of, that were kind of for formerly incarcerated youth. Because there are those youth, right? They're tired, that's not the label that they wanna carry with them. And so seeing his, his trajectory and where he's gone has been encouraging. And then I think going back to um, the point around mental health, you know, there's this initiative that's the California Reducing Disparities Project in California, and it's an initiative that's completely designed to um, support community-defined treatments, community evidence for um, improving mental health. And it's looking at what are those non-traditional ways that um, communities of color um, and LGBTQ communities across the state are treating mental health for young people and doing a lot of that prevention in ways that look nothing like the traditional mental health system. So there's a program in Fresno that teaches uh, youth how to harvest, black youth how to harvest sweet potatoes. And sweet potatoes have you know, um, cultural ties for the black community, but it's also teaching them a business skill. And they actually get to work with black farmers in the area. They get to um, work in a college environment. They actually then go to farmers markets and learn how to sell the potatoes. And so when I see programs like that, I'm like, that's so awesome because it's a mental health prevention strategy that's getting funded for, by the state for the very first time and looks nothing like what you would think of as mental health. And that encourages me. That, that's amazing because my, my better half, she actually works in health and wellness. And mm. one of the most effective things that our organization has found is actually building like low-cost apartments right, right. They, they've learned that if we can give this and they offer them you know six months of free rent and they could stay that's the only way they can get these people to actually think about like you know proper nourishment to see other things you know it's almost like a Maslow hierarchy of needs right yes help with the base needs first then the, they'll be open to doing some of these other things I mean exactly I, 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 I love that I, I love that <laughs> Yeah. That, that, that program is only in stage two right now. How, how many stages are there? Um, it's, it's phase two. That's, it's the second phase of it. The first phase was really doing a, a national state assessment to see what are the ways that communities are, are treating their own uh, members' mental health. And then phase two is actually evaluating the implementation of some of those efforts. So part of what we're doing as a statewide evaluation team is seeing um, how are these strategies either more effective or as effective as traditional mental health services. And they run the gamut from harvesting sweet potatoes to gardening with Hmong elders to um, just anything that you can think of. But it's looking at what are kind of like the culturally based 
ways that communities have always kind of met their needs? And then how can we really start listening and supporting those? That's, that's awesome. Uh, and because this show is about positive visions, I just wonder from you, let's imagine it's five, 10 years from now, and you're seeing more, more initiatives like what you're talking about right now. Could you paint us a picture of what that world would look like if more things like this begin to occur in a positive fashion? Um, you know, I think we wouldn't have a need for a juvenile justice system if we could really try to imagine a world that where people's needs were met. Um, I, I read an op-ed recently that was saying the reason why people are having a hard time with the idea of abolishing the police is because we can't envision, we've lost sight of a community that actually didn't need police because our needs were met. So, you know, what would it look like to where if someone was having challenges, a social worker could come? Or even when I um, think about neighborhood peace workers who when, um, you know, fights or issues might break out between different gangs or there's a shooting or something happens, it's, it's former gang members or maybe just some of the older gang members who come immediately to that situation and help defuse it. And so I imagine, a, you know, that's what I imagine is a community who has their own elders and leaders stepping up to kind of provide for their own needs to where um, there isn't domestic violence, right? Because our needs are met. I think it's, it's a world where we see that people have the best that they have to offer and there's a society that supports that. Well, Dr. Terry, I hope that comes true. Me too. I hope it's faster than 10 years. Yes. Uh, if, if people want to learn more about your work and these projects, what's the best way to keep up to date and follow what's happening? Um, so I would encourage anyone who's interested in kind of reading some of these stories I talked about to check out um, a book co-authored with Laura Abrams, and it's called Everyday Desistance, The Trans Transition to Adulthood Among Formerly Incarcerated Youth. And I would also tell them to check out the Psychology Applied Research Center at Loyola Marymount University. Um, that project is just one of many where it's really supporting community-based efforts um, in, a, in a variety of social justice-related issues. Awesome. Thank you for, for this, and thank you for all the work you're doing for us, Dr. Terry. Very much appreciated. Thank, thank you. you for having me. It was great speaking with you both. Thank you. Hey, if you like today's show, please remember to hit the like button and leave a comment. If you've been enjoying the Changing the Story podcast series, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you.